uh, Grant, you had a birthday this last week, and so I yeah, just want to wish you yeah, yeah. happy birthday. Thank yeah. you. Appreciate it. Yeah. Grant, uh, I want you to know that uh, 62 has never looked so good on anyone. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. <laughs> That's always fun. One year away from 50. When did that happen? You know, it just doesn't seem right. So according to my kids, I have one year left of cool, and then it all goes away. It all just kind of disappears. 24 hours ago, I was in this same building doing a funeral. I've actually been doing a string of funerals, and even though I've been a pastor for uh, going on 27 years-ish, somewhere in that, I can honestly say I don't like funerals. They're, they're more difficult when you know the person, when you actually had a relationship and, and, and loved the person. Funerals are an occupational hazard for a pastor, especially for an emotional pastor like me. If you're new around here and you don't know that I'm emotional, just wait, and it will show up at some point. The reality is I just don't like watching people hurt. I, I, I get no enjoyment whatsoever watching people walk through the grief process. I, do, I don't like tears because I find myself sharing them. I know there's a rule they teach you at pastor school. Number one rule of funerals is don't try to be funny at a funeral. I mean, there's often funny stories told at funerals as people go back through the memory catalog that they have in their mind. But if you try to intentionally be funny at a funeral, it will backfire. It's just the most awkward thing. And I see heads nodding because some of you have experienced that. You just don't want to go that direction. Yesterday was actually easy because the person that we were celebrating uh, was an amazing human being. The tension often comes as a pastor when you have to do a funeral for somebody who wasn't like the person yesterday, they actually were, were a person of, of questionable character. And somehow you're, it's your job to try and say something nice about somebody who may not have actually been very nice. It reminds me of a story. There were two brothers, well-known around town for their crooked business dealings and their underworld connections. They were as mean and cold-blooded as you could possibly imagine. And one day, one of the brothers died. And his surviving brother wanted to give his dead brother a funeral fit for a king. So he called the funeral home, made the arrangements, and then he called the town's pastor and made him an offer. He said, Reverend, I noticed that your church building needs a new roof. So here's the deal. I will give you whatever dollar amount you need to put a new roof on that church if you will do my brother's funeral and in eulogizing him just one time, that's all I'm asking for, you have to call him a saint. That's all I ask. The minister agreed. And word began to spread about the deal and the challenge that had been thrown down. And as small towns often happen, they were beginning to talk to each other. And the entire town turned out for the funeral because word spread as to the minister's challenge. Knowing the evil man as that town did, they thought, how in the world is the pastor going to pull this off and not lie? So they showed up, casket at the front. One of the brothers sitting in the front row being as pious as he could, and the minister began his message with these words. The man that you see in this coffin was a vile and debauched individual. He was a liar, a thief, a deceiver, a cheat, a manipulator, a reprobate, and a hedonist. He destroyed the fortunes and careers and lives of countless people in this city, some of whom are here today. This man in front of you did every rotten, dirty thing you could ever think of. But compared to his brother sitting in the front row, he was a saint. <laughs> Enough of that. If you've ever gone to a funeral, you've heard these famous words from the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote them at the end of his life. 
as the end of his own life was drawing to a close, he read these words. Maybe you've heard them before. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith, and now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who've longed for his appearing. You know, I found this to be true. Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8 are often quoted at the end of a life. These are famous words, usually taking place at the end of a person's life. They're often spoken in retrospect. They're in past tense. They're spoken in honor, if they're actually true, about the person. And as they're spoken in past tense, they refer to someone who has already gone on to heaven. And these words are actually gospel words because they tie in a, a very simple idea that I think we need to be reminded of on a regular basis. Entrance into heaven is not based on your good track record of doing good things or your personal spiritual resume of attending church. Access into heaven is based on one thing and one thing alone, and that's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the King of heaven. Lately, I've been wondering something. Why do we only hear these verses at funerals? Why do we reserve 2 Timothy chapter 4 for funerals? I don't think that's where Paul intended them to be read. I don't think they were to be reserved for that. In fact, I, I would say I believe these verses are for the actively living, maybe even most specifically for a group of people that are standing on the edge of a brand new year, just hoping that somehow 2016 is a little bit better than 2015. Let me ask you a very real question. What if instead of waiting to the end of your life to have these words encapsulate you, what if you could state it, 2 Timothy chapter 4, as a personal fact at the end of every single day? What if you went to bed tonight and were able to say with confidence, I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I fought the good fight, I finished the race, and I kept the faith. What if you could say that at the end of tonight, and the end of tomorrow night, and the end of Tuesday night, and Wednesday night, and if you strung enough of those together, you were able to say, that's actually a declaration I could make at the end of all of my days. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but if you string enough days together, it actually becomes a lifetime. Let's just break that down. Paul says this, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. Paul's comparing his life to this Old Testament practice of pouring wine out as a sacrifice, as a gift to God. The people would come and they would bring the best wine they had and they would offer it to God and they would pour it over top of an animal sacrifice and light it on fire. And the idea was that it would create this beautiful fragrance that rose to God as God would pour out grace and mercy and cover the sins of the people. Now the reality is we don't need to do that anymore. We don't do animal sacrifices anymore. I mean, PETA, you should just be so thrilled that God revoked the animal sacrifice system. We don't do that anymore because the blood of Jesus shed on the cross covered the sin of the people for all time. We don't need to go back to that altar anymore. But here's what we need to learn from Paul. He's saying, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. He's saying this, this is a statement of my present. This is not about the past. This is not past tense. I'm being poured out, present tense. I'm not holding back the contents of my life for the end of my life. No, this outpouring, exhausting every drop of myself, that's my current reality. Paul is saying, I am literally being poured out to the last drop every single day. This is his passion. He's saying, I'm being emptied out so the contents of my life are fully expended. Paul's saying, I don't want to finish my life with the container of my soul still half full. 
I want to pour it all out, all of the time, every single day, so that God gets every last drop of what he has placed inside of me. Paul's not waiting, he's not delaying, and he's not deferring. You know why? Because Paul knew something. None of us has a guarantee of tomorrow. I know that'll freak some of you out, but that's true. That's why he says, the time of my departure is near. Now, Paul doesn't know if he's got two days, two weeks, two months, two years, or two decades left. He has no idea. And I got news for you. Neither do you. I have no idea. I could get hit by a WTA bus tomorrow walking to work. I hope it doesn't happen. I hope you hope it doesn't happen. Um, but I'm uh, <laughs> just saying. Some of you got really interesting looks on your faces when I said that. I'm a little insecure right now. Anyway, so. But Paul's just anticipating. He's anticipating his time is short. And we should be doing the same because none of us have any idea how long or how short God has assigned us to be on this planet. I mean, I've learned something. Some of us vastly overestimate our ability to stay alive. <laughs> Think about it. I go to the hospital all the time. I walk in the door and every patient there has the same story. I didn't see this coming. I didn't anticipate getting sick. I didn't anticipate my kidneys shutting down. I didn't anticipate that the C word would be attached to my life. I work as a chaplain with the sheriff's department. I've also been a support officer in the community in years past. And I have had that, that difficult job of showing up on somebody's doorstep at 2 o'clock in the morning. And knocking on the door and watching this bleary-eyed individual open the door and have to say, do you have a son named David, sir? Yes, I do. Well, I regret to inform you that David lost his life in a car accident earlier this evening. You know, it's amazing to me. Nobody ever sees that coming. That's why it's called a tragedy. And I'm not trying to freak you out. I'm just trying to make sure we all understand that breath you just took, that was borrowed. And today is a day that needs to be lived to its fullest potential because none of us can see what's coming around the corner. None of us knows what holds tomorrow. So, so Paul takes this wise attitude. I have no promise of tomorrow, so I'm going to live today as my last. I mean, he says, this, this may be it, so I'm going to live this day as the gift that it is. He says he knows the time for my departure is near. In fact, that little Greek word in there is the word analysis, which is a military term which meant to take down your tent. Paul's saying, I'm breaking camp in preparation for my next destination. I'm actually preparing to move. I'm not staying here. Paul understands something. This is not my home, so I'm not going to live life as if it is. I'm not going to build a permanent residence here because this is not my permanent residence. I mean, you know that, right? As followers of Jesus, there's a reason why you never feel like you fit here. Let me tell you why. It's because you don't belong here. This is not your spiritual home. So why invest in setting up a permanent residence here when, I mean, I read the end of the book. Hate to tell you. When are we going to learn this is all going to burn? And there'll be nothing left to say, but Lord, take me home. That's the truth of the reality. Paul says, this is portable. He's going to find his permanent residence in heaven. So, I don't like stealing phrases from Tim McGraw in church, but I'm going to say it anyway. 
You know what's coming, right? We're supposed to live like we're dying. And I know the, the, these phrases can be so cliche, and we just, we just push them past. But let me ask them anyway. If, if today was your last day living, what would you do? What would be different if this was your last day? Who, who would you talk to? What would you say? What would you make right? What would you forgive? What would you just release and let go? Because it wouldn't be worth holding on to if you knew that this was your last 24 hours. Well, Paul would say this, whatever pops onto that list, do it now. Because there's no guarantee. That's how you can be poured out as a drink offering. Good to the very last drop. Let's keep moving. Paul says, I fought the good fight. I love that. All the scrappy people in the room just said, did he say fight? I'm going to pick a fight with somebody. I'm going to talk about fighting. That's good. Some of you are spoiling for a good fight, but there's a problem. You're fighting the wrong battle at the wrong time with the wrong enemy. Case in point, red cups at Christmas time. Really? I had people send me petitions to sign over the color of a red cup. A red paper cup. Like, sign on the dotted line. This is a really, really big deal. I'm like, that makes you want to write a letter? That makes me, you want to pick up a sign in protest? That's actually worth you getting upset over? Can I just, seriously? Wow. If you were offended by a red paper Christmas cup, you should see my Christmas cup. And he's smoking. <laughs> you can drink from his pipe. Someone wrote me a letter this year, Grant, you know Santa is just Satan misspelled, right? <laughs> really? This is what we've become? We get all wrapped up about that. You wanted to be offended before, you can be offended now. Write me a letter, make sure you sign it, or I'm not going to read it. That's the bottom line, all right? Paul's not talking. I better cover this up because some of you are so distracted now. <laughs> I'm going to get letters about that, I promise you. <laughs> Paul's not talking about that kind of fight. Paul's talking about fighting sin, fighting evil, fighting that inclination inside of yourself to fight about stupid things. Paul's saying, well, that's not the kind of battle we're trying to fight here. We don't fight on Facebook. We fight in war within our own souls to bring our, our soul into subjection to what God has called us to. Now, I know some of you are just thinking, but Grant, no, you don't understand, man. It's a slippery slope, right? They start with red cups, and before you know it, we've lost the war on Christmas. <laughs> Like, if you've got energy for that, let, let me just propose a couple of thoughts. How about using that energy to declare war on your own greed? Now, come on, pastor. Let's, let, let's, let's move from preaching to meddling. Let's go right there. How about taking that energy and declaring war to fight what you allow through your eye gate to stain your own purity before God? How about picking a war with the fear 
that keeps you mute and silent so that you will never ever even think about why would I walk next door and share my faith in Jesus with that neighbor? How about picking a fight with that fear that keeps us so quiet and so politically correct because we would never dare to offend anybody? Paul's saying he picked that fight. Paul's saying, I went to war with the right enemy. I said out loud to the enemy of my soul, Satan, you want to pick a fight with somebody? You can pick a fight with me, but I want you to understand this. I'm not fighting alone. I've got a shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit, and I will draw a line because I know that I have a victorious king, a victorious warrior coming behind me, and if you pick a fight with me, you pick a fight with him. I mean, that's the kind of fight Paul's talking about here. It doesn't have anything to do with cultural controversies that honestly just make us look really, really stupid and petty. Wow, my heart rate went up really big on that one. I don't know what the deal is. You know, I've learned a few things doing this for a few years. If you preach Jesus, you get critics. It's just plain and simple. I get nasty letters from time to time. And this is how God has taught me to handle them. Number one, I always look to see if there's a little nugget of truth in there, because often there is. Sometimes critics have a point. But I've also learned this. Even though they may be critical of me, they are not my enemy. They might be a victim of the enemy, but they are not my enemy. And no matter how I look at my Bible, it keeps calling me to do the same thing, even with people who are deeply critical of me. I'm called to love them. Love them. Not Facebook hate on them in all caps. I'm called to love them. Paul's saying both internally and externally, I fought the right battle at the right time against the right enemy. Paul's saying, I battled sin every moment against the author of sin and lies himself. And then he moves on. He says, I finished the race. This one's so simple, but I think we just skip right over top of it. Paul's saying, I acknowledge it's not how you start. It's how you finish that matters. You know, culturally, we can look across our, 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 the landscape of our culture, and I think this, we could say this with fairly, fairly significant accuracy. We're professional starters. We love to start something new. Here's the issue. If you never finish what you start, what does it matter? I mean, you just end up with a bunch of half-finished projects lying all over the place. When I ran my first marathon, my running partner, Bob, stopped us right before we started, went across the, 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 the start line. And he said, Grant, a little piece of advice for you. When the gun goes off, people are going to fly out of here. Don't chase them. Don't chase them. Take your time. He goes, I promise you, those people that just bolt across the starting line, you're going to see them again, about mile 22. And when you see them again, they're going to be sitting on the side of the road because they have an amazing start. They're just not going to have enough energy to actually finish. And I was thinking to myself, what good does it do to run a marathon if you don't actually cross the finish line? My friends, the, the race of following Jesus, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. This is a long race. It could be long measured in hours or long measured in years. It's not a series of mini sprints that take a lot of energy in short bursts. No, it's a race that can actually last the length of a lifetime. I love to run. Now, I did not like running before. I started running in my 30s. 
That's what happens when your cholesterol starts going up and your heart rate is doing all kinds of weird things and your doctor starts doing this at you. I decided that I was going to start running. Hated running before that, but what actually motivated was a dare to run a marathon from an evil man from Cornwall Church <laughs> whose initials are Bob Marvel, okay? <laughs> I learned some valuable spiritual lessons about stamina from that dare from Bob. Let me share some of them with you, a few lessons about long-term stamina. Number one, Bob taught me, you've got to master a sustainable pace. Your spiritual journey is going to take a lifetime, so you need to learn to get in step with the Spirit and let God set the pace. Sometimes we travel way too slow, and we miss God's plan entirely. Sometimes we run too fast, we get ahead of God's plan, and we over-anticipate what God is actually doing. Some of us run in a state of constant spiritual exhaustion because we don't follow God's plan. God's plan is six days of work, one day of rest. You notice it's not the office. It's not six days of rest, one day of work. The Bible also says you don't work, you don't eat. That's how it goes. But God says, no, there's a pace where you're supposed to take your foot off the gas pedal to replenish your reserves so that you can actually finish. Because that's what God wants for us. Some of us are in a constant state of spiritual apathy and spiritual gluttony because we ignore God's plan to actually move. We know the Great Commission starts with a word, right? go. That implies a movement. It means we don't get to just stay in the same place. And some of us substitute spiritual action for gorging ourselves at a buffet of church activities that never actually allow us to get outside of the building and run the race. Can I tell you something? This is supposed to be one of those places of rest. It's also a starting line. But the Christian race is not run inside of this building. It's not run inside here. It's run out in the world, reaching people and inviting them to come and join us in that race. Number two, run together. You know, you may be able to go faster alone, but I promise you, you can go further together. My first marathon in Vegas, they bust us 26.2 miles out into the desert and then said, run back to the lights. As if you have any choice at that point, right? <laughs> I mean, you're out in the middle of nowhere. When Bob and I were running that race together, about mile 13, we emerged from this little dip and I heard my running partner say two words that I was not happy to hear. He said, uh-oh. <laughs> you don't want to hear that. I'm like, what? Uh-oh. And then about three seconds later, I figured it out. We got hit in the face with about a 25-mile-an-hour headwind. It was coming straight at us. And I thought to myself, there is absolutely no way I'm going to cross the finish line. No way. This is just going to be way too hard. That's when I was thankful I was, wasn't running alone. Because Bob, at that time, was a veteran marathoner. He didn't need to, he wasn't trying to qualify for Boston or anything like that. In fact, his goal in running that marathon was just to get me and my sorry excuse for running across the finish line. That's why he did it. So when the wind hit us in the face, Bob just said, follow me. And he ran out in front of me. And because he's a little bit bigger than I am, he blocked the wind and I tucked right in behind him, and I drafted all the way to Las Vegas, Nevada. <laughs> we needed to finish. You know why? Because we were coming back to preach a message together called Pastors on the Run in Sin City. Some of you remember it, yeah? <laughs> you remember that? We ran together. I know you guys get tired of me saying this, but I'm going to say it again. 
This is not a race that was meant to run alone. You need to get in a small group. Best thing about Christ the King is a really big church. Worst thing about Christ the King is a really big church. Easy to get lost here. And if you're not in a small group, you're going to say, no, I'm doing just great on my own. Here's my question. What happens when tragedy hits you? Who are you going to call? Well, I'm going to call the church. Guess what? The pastors here are outnumbered by the hundreds. I showed up at the hospital the other day. Guy laying in the bed. Small group was already there. Care, the net had been established. Meals were already coming to the family. And I just showed up and went, okay, well, I guess I'll just pray and go home, you know. We've got to learn to run together. Here's the next one. Break a plateau with speed and action. When I was training, Bob made me do speed work. I thought that was just dumb. I'm like, well, why do I need to do speed work? I just need to learn how to master an eight and a half minute mile. That's what I need to be able to do. That'll get me across the line in less than four hours, which is what my goal was. And he's like, no, Grant, you don't understand. Your body will literally learn to plateau at a slower pace than you want to run unless you do speed work. Drove me crazy. He kept sending me to the Linden tracks, and you got to run 400-meter sprints. I'm like, that's just crazy. I just need to learn how to master this particular pace. And he's just like, I promise you, if you do speed work, your body will adapt to be able to go faster than you actually think you can. How do you do spiritual speed work? Let me make some suggestions. You look for opportunities and you meet them instantaneously. You see a need and you meet it if you have the means to be able to do that. Now, we can't meet every single need, but when God puts a need in front of us, I've learned something about it. If he puts a need in front of us, he also gives us the means to be able to meet the need because he put works in front of us prepared in advance for what God prepared for us to do. That's what scripture actually says. So you need to see a need and meet it. You see somebody that has a need, you have a means to do it, do it instantaneously. Don't come up with 17 reasons why you're going to do it tomorrow. I promise you, you're going to get stuck in good intentions. You have to have speed in order to be able to move ahead. Here's another example. Sometimes you've got to jumpstart your faith. I've just been sensing some complacency in my own soul. Just free disclosure. It just gets a little easy sometimes when you get, you get kind of stuck in our culture where, where we're so unbelievably blessed. And yet it's so easy to get kind of locked into that world that says, you know, I really do think it, it is about us. That somehow we are the most important thing that God's up to in the world today. And I began to sense that and a door opened, a door of opportunity opened. So I'm going to be honest with you. I am jump-starting my faith by heading to Thailand on Wednesday. I'd love if you guys would pray for us because I'm scared to death. We're meeting with a group of young leaders, young pastors, young church planters. These guys are, are paying a price that I cannot even wrap my head around in a country that's 95 to 96% Buddhist. They, they, they pay a different kind of price for doing what I am doing right now. And somehow it's supposed to be my job to come alongside, coach, encourage, and teach them something. I woke up in the middle of the night the other day going, God, what in the world do I have to teach them? I don't have anything to teach them. They have everything to teach me. You know what God said? Just wash feet, Grant. Just take a bowl and a towel, follow my example, wash their feet, pray for them, listen to the questions, and then get out of the way because you don't have the answers. The Holy Spirit of God has the answers. You're just a ventriloquist puppet. 
So you just move your mouth, and I'll fill your mouth with a divine kind of inspiration. It has nothing to do with you. And if it ends up having something to do with you, boy, will you have missed it. So I'm going to jumpstart our faith. Some of you need to break out of your spiritual rut. Some of you actually need to go on a mission trip next door in your neighborhood. Some of you need to take an alpha course because you've just gotten old and stale and you've forgotten the joy of your salvation and you need to come back to basics. Some of you need to serve in adventure land because I'll tell you something. You can learn a lot from a three-year-old that just loves Jesus. They may even teach you how to share. (laughs) Just a thought. They may teach you how to love animal crackers again. Some of you need to remember that animal carrot crackers taste good. I don't know where that came from. It just showed up in my head. (laughs) Let's go to this last one. Focus on the finish line. You know, at the end of my life, I want to be able to make the same statement of Paul. That I finished the race. Not that I ran it, but that I finished it. I was watching the Barcelona Olympic Games years ago. I like watching track and field. I watched a young man named Derek Redmond run a race. He was running in a 400-meter qualifying race. He was from representing the country of Great Britain. He trained his entire life for that moment just to finish that 400-meter race one time around the track. You should YouTube it sometime. Derek Redmond, Olympic fail is usually how it pops up. 200 meters into that race, Derek pulls up lame because he shredded his hamstring. Completely let go. And he literally went down to his knees. Everybody just kept running on past. But for some reason, the camera stayed on this young guy who was on his knees, crawling towards the finish line. He eventually makes it up onto one leg. And even though an Olympic official comes out and says, you need to stop, he pushes past him and starts hopping on one leg. And people start to cheer. Then there's a commotion up in the crowd because some guy's trying to get through the crowd onto the track. And security's trying to stop him and he will not be denied. It was Derek's dad. And he runs up alongside of him, puts his son's arm around his neck. And the two of them hop and walk the last 200 meters till he crosses that finish line. Some of us are not going to be able to run across the finish line. We're going to limp. And I'm going to tell you something. In God's Olympics, that's okay. We're going to stumble. We're going to fall. But what we know is this. Our Heavenly Father will battle through the crowd and push whatever obstacle comes into His way to pick up His son or His daughter and make sure that not on their strength, but on His strength, that they have an opportunity to cross the finish line. And I will say this to all of my brothers and sisters. Wouldn't it be cool if we got to finish together? Wouldn't it be amazing if under God's strength, we finished the race in a way that God was able to say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's wrap this up. Paul says, I've kept the faith. Kept the faith, which means this, I asked hard questions and lived with hard answers. 
I didn't waver or acquiesce when culture was saying you need to be politically correct and close your mouth. I didn't sell my belief system for something that was easier or convenient for me, but in fact, I sought after opportunities to inconvenience myself because that always seems to be where Jesus shows up. I didn't back off or back down. I held the whole counsel of God even when it wasn't popular or politically correct because I realized one day I would answer to the king who wrote that counsel of God and not the court of public opinion. I want to be able to say like Paul, I've lived out and obeyed the whole counsel of God. When I finish my first marathon with Bob Marvel, that moment will be forever Im just impaled inside of my brain. Bob had enough energy when we crossed the finish line to jump in the air and click his heels. I wanted to punch him so bad, but I couldn't reach him because my legs were barely moving. When we cross the finish line, it's amazing. They usually give you an orange to try and get some energy back into your body, and then they put a medal around your neck. That medal is probably worth about 67 cents, just in materials. It's kind of a cheap little plastic thing, but I still have it. I got it in a box upstairs. Because the feeling of finishing, to me, that was priceless. Paul says to everyone who finishes every day with the knowledge that for that day they poured themselves out and fought the good fight and finished the race and kept the faith, he says there's a reward waiting. Now there's in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who longed for his appearing. Paul's saying, your reward, if you finish well, if you can get to the end of every single day and pray 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8 as truth over your own life, Paul is saying, you're not going to get some cheap plastic bauble. You're going to get a crown. And that crown will last for eternity. Paul's saying, I'm actively awaiting a reward that can only come from Jesus. My friends... Can we live in such a way that we don't need to save these verses for our funerals? Can we get to the end of today and say, just pour it out like a drink offering? Pretty dry today because every drop got poured out. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith for today. And I'm trusting God with tomorrow. My prayer is these verses will become the motivation to develop a spiritual stamina that will allow us to finish the race, whether we run across the finish line or limp across the finish line. God has called us to finish. And my prayer is that we'll finish together at the end of this day, at the end of this year, and at the end of all of our lifetimes. Would you pray with me this morning? God, thank you for this day. We thank you for the hope that comes in knowing that you never ever ask us to do something that you don't also equip us to do. Father God, I pray for my brothers and sisters who may be tired. I pray for those that are limping. I pray for those who are running at one time 
And then for whatever reason, just sat down on the side of the road and have been watching the race go by. God, I pray that those who are tired would be renewed in their spirit today. I pray that they would realize none of us run on our own power. We run under the power of the Holy Spirit of God. So I pray that our prayers would change. And instead of just simple human effort, that instead we would say, Jesus, would you empower me to run well today? God, I pray for the limpers. And I pray that they would limp on. I pray that they would feel their father coming up underneath of their arm, carrying and sustaining them across those last few meters. God, I pray for those who stopped running altogether, and I pray that 2016 would be a year when they say no more, and that even if they have to walk or crawl, that they would be focused on the finish line and begin to move again. Father, I thank you that you've invited us into this race. I pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we would be poured out like a drink offering, that we would fight the good fight, finish the race, and keep the faith, not simply so we could receive a reward, but so that you could receive all of the glory for a race well run. I pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all God's people say. So I'll tell you exactly what the plan is. The plan is for the next couple of weeks to focus on spiritual health. I want to challenge you to be here. Pastor Todd is going to take you through certain sections of our health assessment because I think sometimes we think we're way healthier than we actually are. And that can be a motivator to actually get moving, to get in the game and run the race. I would love if you would pray for Laurel and I as we head to the other side of the world. We are scared intimidated, a little freaked out, but we know God's taking us there for a reason. And then when we come back, I'm going to try and incite you to come and do something like that with us somewhere, wherever God happens to be, or to be involved in another level as a church as we continue to become a healthy sending movement. And then we're going to do a series called Stuck. If you have friends who don't know Jesus, I'm just going to tell you, that's series was specifically designed for all of us, but specifically for people who don't know Jesus to come and go, you know, maybe I am kind of stuck. And how Jesus would help get them out of whatever hole they would find themselves in. I hope you'll come and be a part of it. The cool thing for us is all of our campuses will be preaching the same series across the entire cross-section of Christ the King churches. And we are so excited to see what God might do. I've been working on this thing for for three or four months, and I just can't wait to see what God might be up to. So normally we would finish up with a song, but because of the content today, I think it would probably be more fitting to finish the service this way. Christ the King, on your mark, get set, go. Go.